So if you are new to us on Wednesday nights, uh, I need to give you full disclosure. Uh, we are a schizophrenic Bible study, meaning that we are going to uh, try to accomplish the pastor's Bible study. And the purpose for that is to give us a preview of the scripture that we're going to be looking at on Sunday. Uh, the other purpose of our Wednesday night group is that we are an experiencing God group as well. We are all uh, memorizing the scriptures and we're all working our way through the workbook. And so I will do the first little bit and at 6.30-ish, ish, uh, I'm going to give it to, uh, to John and uh, he will take us through the uh, feedback on the Experiencing God unit. Uh, in both circumstances, I want you to know that this is your time as well. A lot of times with, when I'm blowing through the Bible study part, uh, I, I don't slow down enough for questions. Uh, we have a very controversial part of the scripture uh, this week, which I'll get started on now and continue when we get to Hebrews 10. Uh, but uh, I want to make sure that we do honor uh, the pastor's Bible study as well as the Experiencing God group. So if you feel like you're drinking out of a fire hose, you are. Uh, it's, uh, it's aimed right at you, and uh, we're going to bring it. Uh, we've been in a series called Better. And the purpose of that series is to help us to be reminded that the writer of Hebrews, whoever it is, has said to us that many of us try many things, but Jesus is better. Now, he's talking to Jewish Christians in the area that we would today call Asia Minor. But these are... Uh, I. I could go on and on. I, these are Christians that I don't believe have been reached with the Gospels yet. The, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written about the same time as Hebrews, maybe a little bit later. And so we don't have any evidence in Hebrews that they know about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John was not written until much, much later. But we, we don't have any evidence, so we don't, we don't know that they've read the Beatitudes. We don't think they've heard the Sermon on the Mount. These are Jewish Christians who are trying to come to grips, and, and, and I know this is hard for a lot of us who've studied the Bible, but the letters of Paul are earlier than the Gospels. So we, we have them arranged backwards in our Bibles, uh, but the letters of Paul were earlier than Matthew, Mark, Luke and then much earlier than John, which was dated somewhere around the end of the first century. So when the writer of Hebrews is just trying to comfort some people who are getting really, really tired of trying to make it all work, they're discouraged. They are wondering when God's going to show up. They're, uh, they're sick and tired of being sick and tired. And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to do about three things. He's trying, number one, to say Jesus is better than anything you're trying. Jesus is better than anything in the Old Testament. And Jewish people, 
What is their happy place? What is their comfort zone? It's temple worship. It's the law. It's the Old Testament. So he's constantly saying to them, don't go back to a system where you think you've got to slaughter an animal to please God. Jesus has pleased God once and for all. He is the sacrifice for sins. He is the propitiation, the offering. He he is the sacrificial lamb now and forever. Amen. But the Jewish people, just like us, well, okay, God, you must have a busy day. So I'm going to try to handle this on my own. You God, you must be occupied doing creating something or or judging something or fixing something or parting water or something. I, I I'll handle this on my own. And so I, I don't want us to get too far from the first century, but we remember that Hebrews was written to encourage them when they felt discouraged to say, don't drift back to the old ways and know that there is a better way coming. And so just remember that the the, the writer of Hebrews is telling us about the benefits of persevering in Christ. Now, I'm, I'm very aware that some of you are new Christians. Some of you have been walking with God for a very long time, but the common denominator seems to be there are seasons in our lives where we just feel like God is very, very far away. Something has happened to us. Some things happened to because of us. We've made a mistake. Someone else has hurt us. And we just feel like we can barely think of God, let alone acknowledge that his presence is close to us. That's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to address. And so it is one of the most relevant books in all of the New Testament. The writer has already told us that Jesus is better than the angels. The Jews thought that the angels were the ones who brought messages. And so the writer says, in the days past, uh, God spoke through the prophets, through the word, through the law. Now he has spoken through his son. Jesus is better than the angels as proclaimers. He's told us that Jesus is better than Moses, the ultimate law giver. So Jesus is better, the new covenant, the new way of thinking, that's better. Then he took a little bit of a pause. Robert talked about it last week. We talked about it in here, that in chapter three, he's saying, listen, part of what we imitate is God's rest. And in biblical terms, That means rest from our labors, rest from our anxiety, rest from our our constant uh, relational problems. But then there were two kinds of rest that were even more specific, Sabbath rest and eternal rest. Sabbath rest, Robert talked a lot about Sunday, is that God set the example for us in that after six days of creation, he rested. He he indicated that the work was done. Now that's that's a I I I wish Robert had camped on that a little bit more, but that's what God said. It is done. My work is done. So God rested because the task was complete. So when he says we are to observe a Sabbath rest, 
that Sabbath rest is based on the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and promised return of Jesus. The work is done, so we rest. So when we celebrate the Sabbath rest, we aren't celebrating a day off. We aren't celebrating we don't have to work today. We're celebrating that the work is done. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And that is the promise then of eternal rest. And the writer of Hebrews goes back and forth almost interchangeably where we can hardly keep up with him. But he's telling us that that the rest is going to also be eternal. And now he compares it to the promised land. He said that the, the Jewish people wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years trying to figure out what was what. They were wandering around because they kept trying to replace me with their own ways. The golden calf, water from the rock. They kept trying to replace what I have promised them with their own efforts, their own sacrifices, their own offerings. And so that's the constant theme in Hebrews. And so he said, just like I I told them that they would enter a land of promise, I've got a land of promise for you, but it's after your work is done on this world. After your work is done in this life. I have given you an eternal rest, a place of promise. And uh, the he switches metaphors a whole lot going back and forth, but that's that's where he's going. And so that leads us to the end of chapter four, where at the, the very end of chapter four, he leaves us with this, this mystical metaphor uh, of a guy named Melchizedek. Now, I'm going to talk about him a lot more later on, but understand the structure of Hebrews for a second. Chapter 1, the supremacy of Christ. Chapter 2, Jesus is better than the angels. Chapter 3, Jesus is better than Moses, and there is a rest for the people. But he's he keeps coming back to this, uh, this theme that Jesus is a great high priest, and it's on the order of Melchizedek. Um, You see his uh, name all the way through chapter 5 and verse 10. Well, just a preview, Melchizedek is only mentioned like twice in the Old Testament. But Melchizedek had two characteristics that uh, the writer of Hebrews, and apparently this is what God was doing through his spirit. He said, when you think of Jesus as priest and king, I don't want you to think of Moses as a priest. Don't want you to think of Aaron as a priest. Don't want you to think of David as a king, Solomon as a king, Saul as a king. I want you to think of a guy who was both priest and king. And that was Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem. Does that ring a bell with anybody? Yes. Salem is Jerusalem. And so Salem was where Abraham brought offerings to the king of Salem, partially because 
Mount Moriah, where he uh, brought his own son Isaac to sacrifice, that is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem today. And so Abraham had this special connection with Salem, and he brought offerings to the king and priest. Now, Melchizedek was not, he was before the law. He was before Moses. He was before Aaron. So he was not of the priestly line that later on God would say, all of the priests are going to be appointed by me as through the line of Aaron, the Levitical priests. All the priests will be priests, not kings. So before any of that happened, there was a priest and king whom God didn't, uh, he, he didn't come through the line of Aaron. He was appointed apparently by God separately. So when the, the writer says that Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek, he's telling us he is both priest and king and that he didn't come through the line of Aaron. He is not a priest according to the law. He is a priest according to grace. <clears throat> so that's the preview. Let's look at the very end of chapter four, dive into chapter five. I promise you I'm going to be ready. I'm going to be done. <clears throat> so at the very end of chapter four, he says, Jesus is the great high priest, but he's a high priest, verse six, chapter uh, uh I'm sorry, the end of chapter four, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Now, what did the priest sit on, the king sit on? A throne of power, a throne of judgment. But Jesus sat on a throne of grace. And so we can find grace in our time of need. And now he's going back to the priesthood, chapter five. Every high priest chosen from men is appointed to act on behalf of relation to God. Here's another thing that was different about Jesus. All of the priests were ordinary guys. And the writer of Hebrews says they were fallible, just like us. They had to offer sacrifices for themselves as well as the people because they sinned. And so he says, they know how to deal with people gently, verse 2, with the ignorant and wayward, because he, the priest, is also beset with, uh, with weakness. Verse 3, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just like the sins of the people. Then he says, so no one is, appoints himself. They, they're all appointed. All the priests are appointed. And now Christ has been appointed. He didn't appoint himself. God appointed him. He quotes Psalm 2, you are my son, I've begotten you. He quotes Psalm 110, you are a priest forever on the order of Melchizedek. Here we go again. So verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers. This is probably the most important part of the first section. And supplications with cries and tears, saying Jesus cried, <clears throat> Jesus suffered. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through suffering. So Jesus as human, it's very important to the writer of Hebrews that we know that Jesus suffered just like we suffer. That he wondered where God was. Father, why have you forsaken me? 
that he didn't want the, the agony, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. That he wept over the city of Jerusalem. He wept over his friend Lazarus. He felt pain. He felt grief. He, when, when they put the crown of thorns on him, he, he had all of the sharp pain that you and I have when we stick something in our flesh. So the writer of Hebrews wants to make sure that we know that through suffering, Jesus modeled obedience and that he was able to suffer on our behalf because he didn't respond to that in sin. It wasn't because of his sin and he didn't sin as a result of it. He didn't call down angels to zap the Romans. He didn't, he didn't respond. He went to the cross in Philippians. The scripture says that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so the writer here is trying to make sure that we understand that he earned salvation. He instituted the new covenant because he was sacrificed as a sinless lamb but not an animal, the very son of God. And so Abraham was mentioned because Abraham said, I will sacrifice my son, God, because you told me to. What did God do? Provided. Who did he provide, Nancy? He provided the sacrifice of the goat or whatever it was. A ram caught in the bushes. Have any of you ever heard the term Christophany? He provided Jesus. You really think about the incident at Mount Moriah. He said, I will provide the ram. And he did. The ram is a male sheep. I will provide the ram. There are times in the New Testament where Jesus shows up in a pre-incarnate stage. He showed up in the fire with Daniel and with Daniel's three friends. He showed up in the thicket when Abraham was about to sacrifice his son. He said, you don't need to do this. I will provide my son. And we can't miss that. Okay, that's the, the writer of Hebrews was aware that this was a Christophany. He was aware that the Christ figure had been in the Abraham story. And that's why he brings up Abraham. He, he says, that's what Abraham offered to Melchizedek. Abraham came to the, the priest who was both priest and king. He offered to him. And, and we can't miss that back in Genesis, the Christophany of the story of Isaac and Abraham is Jesus sacrificing on behalf of the sin offering. So he changes gears in chapter five, verse 10. And he doesn't return to the theme of Melchizedek until the middle of chapter seven. So, so if you think there's a little bit of a, a hard stop and a topic change, you're exactly right. Because the writer of Hebrews is all caught up in, in Jesus as the, the appropriate sacrifice for our sins. But then he looks at us like, why won't you just realize what I'm giving you? <laughs> it's it's like so many of us as fathers looked at our kids and go, "Are you out of your minds? Do you not do you not understand what you've been given? Stop acting like a knucklehead." 
Well, the writer of Hebrews is saying to these Jewish Christians, stop acting like knuckleheads. And so he changes gears and he says, I need to talk for just a little bit about your spiritual immaturity here. And so he goes on, he says, I have much to say here. It's hard to explain. I can't hardly find the words for it, verse 11, but you become dull you become hard of hearing. You ought to be teachers, but you're you're still drinking milk when you ought to be moving to meat. You, you, you should be. Your teeth have come in already. Stop gumming your stuff to death. He says, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled. He says, he says you're having doubts because you're not doing the work. You're, you're just, you're thinking God's going to bring it all to you and you're not going to have to pray. You're not going to have to consider the, the, the elements of faith. And so he lists them. He says, uh, the verse, um, but solid food, verse 14 is for the mature, those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He said, you're just laying on the couch waiting for it to come to you. And so now he listed, he says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Let's go on to maturity. And now he says that now be careful here because he, it, it would be easy for you to think that the writer of Hebrews is saying you need to lay aside these things. And he's not saying lay aside. He's saying build on them. So he says, not laying again, a foundation of repentance, of instruction about our washings, our baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. He says, he says, let's move on from those. Not to say let's forget about them, but let's build on them. Let's let's make sure you understand the resurrection of the dead. Make sure you understand the doctrine of salvation. Make sure you understand why we baptize, why we ceremonially wash, why we fast, why we pray. But let's move on from these things. You you should be moving on. It's no wonder you're discouraged. You, you're you're I don't know. Y'all remember what was it? Was it Happy Gilmore that the kid was an adult in the second grade? Is that the one? It, never mind. <laughs> he said you ought to do better. In verse three, he says we'll 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 talk about those again as the will of God permits. But it's impossible. Here's the hard part, and here's where I'm going to leave you hanging and just turn it over to John and let him sort it out. It is impossible. The Greek word there for impossible means impossible. <laughs> In the case of those who have once been enlightened and have shared, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted of the good of, and the powers of the ages to come, and then they have fallen away. It's impossible for them to again return to repentance. There's about five ways people look at this. But the big question in everybody's mind is what? Can you lose your salvation? Can we lose our salvation? A lot of people have handled it a lot of ways. I'm going to skip to the end and say no. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Philippians 3, where 
Paul said, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. And if Christ took hold of me, he's not going to let me go. If I'm playing the game, you remember what Hebrews is about? You want to go back to the old sacrifices. You want to go back to the old ways. You want to go back to what's comfortable. You're doing the hokey pokey. You got one foot in and one foot out. And and some people would say these people were never truly enlightened. Some people would say they've been enlightened and they fell away. Some people would say it's hypothetical. I kind of lean that way because the writer of Hebrews is saying, let me tell you about a situation that probably can't exist. Because if Christ gets a hold of you, he's not letting you go. If you get a hold of Christ, you're certainly not letting him go. You'll have dark times. And the writer acknowledges you guys are having dark times. You're 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 trying to figure out your moorings. You're still talking about the elementary things of the faith. You can't help yourself. I get it. You're discouraged. Christ suffered. Some of our greatest growth is through suffering, obedience in suffering. That's why he talked about that. But if you look, and I and I and I don't have time to go to all of it. But if you look all the way down to verse 9, he says, Though we speak this way, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. That's why I, I think he's 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 talking about something that could happen. There, it, there could be somebody who says all the right words, does all the right things. I think there are a lot of preachers who have showed that they're not really saved. At the same time, the writer here is trying to say, this isn't really you guys. You guys are, uh, you're discouraged, yes, but hang in there because I feel sure of better things. God is not unjust. He doesn't overlook your work and the love you've shown for his name. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, verse 11, verse 12, so that you're not sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then the rest of the chapter talks about those promises, the basis for those promises. He says, God has given you two signs of surety. You know, where you borrow money that I need, I need two forms of collateral. He says, God has given you an oath. God has given you a promise. And he will not let go of his promise. The sermon Sunday is called a better hope. And it doesn't sound like I've been talking about hope at all. But I will quote Hal Lindsey, who is a kook in a lot of ways, but he said something incredibly insightful. He said, the human can go 40 days without food, eight days without water, eight minutes without air, no seconds without hope. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to say, when you feel like you've lost everything else, don't lose sight of hope.